0: Allah Voice of Islam Radio.
1: In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful, Assalamu Alaikum Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the live show here from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. This is your host, Daniel Zia, and I'm joined today by Imam Usman Manan. We will be live until 9 a.m. And we have, as is the norm, two topics to talk about. Today's the first topic is about children's mental health, and this is uh, Children's Mental Health Week. Uh, the second topic, which we shall discuss um, starting at about uh, 8.10 a.m., and that's about uh, equality in caring responsibilities. So she, we shall be focusing a little bit about um, the importance of um, uh, caring and the importance of equality in caring responsibilities. Please do join us. This is a live show, as I said. Uh, by calling us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Alaykum, warm welcome uh, back to the studios, uh, Imam Manan. How are you doing?
2: I'm
1: good, uh, by the grace of
2: Allah. Thank you for the warm welcome. How are you today?
1: I am very well. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um yeah, it's it's been uh, the week has started off uh, on the right note. So it it wasn't raining today. It wasn't frosty today. In fact, it was rather nice this morning, but uh, I think it's going to t- turn chilly uh, by the uh, by the end of the week, uh, probably next weekend is probably I think uh, going to be slightly cooler. So, yeah, yeah. all good here. Yes, you're right. Uh, it, it will get cooler, but it also get sunnier, according to the
2: weather reports.
1: I, I, you know what? I actually like that. I prefer that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't mind uh, the, the cold as long as it's sunny, and I actually yeah. like that. You know, as long as you're 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 fully dressed up, then uh, you know I don't mind the cold, and I actually like to sit in the sun when it's. Yeah, uh, I think
2: the sun obviously um, it's quite established now that it has like a positive effect on you, mm-hmm. it gives you those those. You know, uh, happy chemicals. Happy um, hormones, just yeah. the sunlight. Correct. Even if it's cold or not. But the rain just adds to the dullness and it just makes things worse. Mm, but, absolutely. Uh, let's, yeah. let's
1: see. Well thank God no um no rain um hopefully today. Um right. Um the the topics, uh, as I said, that we shall be discussing um, are Children's Mental Health Week. That one will start at about seven thirty am, and the second topic uh, is about equality in caring responsibilities, and we shall start that one at about eight. 10 am so please do join us for both of these discussions the number once again is 02086877878 so starting off uh, as we always do um with the headlines uh, in the newspapers um, uh, this morning uh, imam inan would you like to take us through the headlines in the newspapers this morning uh
2: yes of course So, um, horrifying dog attack and bonkers week of weather this week. The fatal attack on a grandmother uh, by dogs is the lead story in Monday's Daily Express. A picture of a smiling Esther Martin can be seen on the front page. She was mauled to death in a savage attack in Essex, the paper says. Police say they are waiting for the breed to be confirmed by expert. Meanwhile, in common with a lot of Monday's papers, the king has been seen... ...as as he smiles and uh, waves in his first outing since undergoing a prostate tr- treatment last month. The Daily Mirror also focuses on the horrifying dog attack and says um, S- Esther Martin is yet another victim. It adds that she was attacked while visiting her grandson after trying to stop puppies fighting. Separately, on the front page, the paper asks where does it all end as new strikes by the U.S. and U.K. Targets, uh, target sites in Yemen. Tensions in the Middle East continue to feature on a number of Monday's front pages, <clears throat> with The Guardian reporting the U.S. saying strikes on Iran-backed group are just the beginning. The paper says the White House has refused to rule out attacks on Iranian soil. Elsewhere, on an exclusive report says Labour will extend the full right to equal pay to include black, Asian and minority ethnic workers as well as those with disabilities if the party were to come into power at the next general election. Iran used accounts with two of the UK's biggest banks, Lloyds and Santander, to covertly move money around the world and evade sanctions, the FT reports. But dominating the front page is a picture of Houthi tribesmen parading ...as a show of defiance after a third round of joint UK and US attacks on sites in Yemen. Meanwhile, Jeremy Hunt is expected to bolster the UK's military power in the Red Sea, according to the front page of the Eye. The paper says the Chancellor is under pressure to raise defence spending next month after a number of Houthi attacks uh, on ships in the area. And it also reports on what it calls lockdown nostalgia... In young adults, as it says, a third say they were happier in the pandemic. An emotional plea from the mother of murdered teen Brianna Gay leads the Daily Mail as she calls to limit phones for under-16s. Esther Gay uh, wants new legislation to help parents control what their children can access online after her daughter's murderers planned her killing via horrific messages over WhatsApp and Snapchat. The Daily Telegraph reports that 40 barge migrants who are seeking asylum in the UK are converting to Christianity. Laws around the church's role in asylum claims may be tightened. The paper says after a man suspected of carrying out an attack in Clapham was granted asylum on that basis. Meanwhile, the Times reports that the public want a digital pass for all their GP records, according to their own survey data. Eight in ten supported health passports, while 89% said that patients should automatically be allowed to access their own medical records. Standing out on the front page is a picture of Dua Lipa sporting a bright red coat covered in bells. The singer was photographed arriving at the Grammy Awards in California. And The Sun says a Premier League footballer is in rehab for party gas. The paper says the unnamed top flight footballer has been admitted to a medical center after his family asked his club for help with addiction issues uh, Bonkers Britain could experience three seasons in one week according to the Daily Star that comps as forecasts predict uh, as forecasts predict the country could see balmy spring st- balmy springs, temps turn to autumnal rains and a wintry wintry weekend
1: Thank you very much uh, for that, Imam Anain. What do you think about uh, the ban on um, under-16s, mobile phones under-16s?
2: Your thoughts? Uh, it will be very difficult. It's yeah, I think I, I am in favor of uh, quite a lot of these um, restrictive bans which are going to help society. But uh, again, we have to take, um, we have to be a realistic Hmm. I mean, under 16s, it would be the same issue, you know. Like stopping children from any anything, they will, they will ask you the question, "Why can you use it? Why can't I use it?" Yeah, I guess and
1: especially 16 is in quite
2: a uh, teenagers It's well, quite, yeah. uh, it's, it's a big age. Yeah, it's a, it is un, an advanced age. if you say age, under tens or under 12s, yeah, uh, that would make more sense. Under 14s.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's where it gets dicey right that's where it gets difficult
2: yeah i don't know I, nowadays like phones are just like power of our life i think correct. we need to we need
1: to adapt to them 15th you're in in your GCSEs right when yeah. you're doing when when you're 15 so yeah i guess that would be slightly difficult because you are uh, whether or not you're an adult, I think uh, at that age you do consider yourself to be an adult. <laughs> uh, whether or not you're legally an adult, but yeah. um, that's the age where you can choose,
2: right? Yeah, <laughs> you, okay. you can be the adult when you want, and you can be a child when you when you're in trouble. Correct that too,
1: absolutely. So yeah, I agree. Um, it is it is tricky, but uh, but
2: to be honest, even this um, this article where the the, the murderers planned the attack on WhatsApp, I think this is something unavoidable if if there wasn't whatsapp if there wasn't mobile phones they could have done it through meeting in person uh so mm-hmm. it's i think it, it's more about the actual uh, um the murderers the the, mm-hmm. the criminals rather than the mobile phones yeah. uh but again obviously wherever we can take precaution it's necessary that it just shows like because whatsapp is end to end encrypted um no yeah. one is supposed to have any say in it you know when um, yeah, apart it's, from it's criminal all actions, correct, absolutely, uh, and, and that would defeat the purpose of it, because uh, so many people ask for you know security and privacy, mm. and mm. then some people some people misuse that privacy, and then uh, people stand up to say it removed that privacy again. Mm. So it's it's like a loop. Uh, but, but everybody wants their privacy; they need their privacy. But uh, it, when it comes to security, um, I don't know how much the government can do. Um, uh, for example in Saudi Arabia you can use WhatsApp but you can't use video calling or audio calling you can only message Mm -hmm. so they have the power to restrict these apps um, and manipulate them however they want in terms of use so but I think restricting access to under 16s wouldn't, wouldn't I think that's not the cause of this. What what that's about
1: what, uh, s- g- g- you know, generally so we shall be talking about uh, children's mental health um in the first topic today. Mm. W- w- <clears throat> what about the linkage there? So w- do you think that there should be some sort of a restriction on the use of social media for yeah. for, for in your early teens, you know, even under teens 16s. even teenagers are saying this.
2: Can yeah. you believe this? Like mm. under 16s are they know themselves that you know we spending too much time on social media and we are too influenced by um various influences on on tick instagram youtubers and they they are realizing themselves that we are wasting too much time on this um and then of course if you do too much of anything that has an effect on you and it, for example snatching away their phones at this age or at this time it, Maybe this will cause a new mental health issue. Yeah, <laughs> they might have some some new trauma because they don't have their phone. <laughs> yeah, correct. So yeah. there'll always be these problems. Uh, we'll be discussing this in a bit more detail later, of course.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's let's uh, delve uh, into that. I think that uh, would be an interesting discussion. Um, right. In other news, appearing uh, in the newspapers um, uh, this morning. So. Um, The Guardian carries uh, this news about uh, labor plans to extend equal pay, um, uh, equal pay rights to black, Asian and minority ethnic staff. So, according to this, uh, a labor government would extend the full right to equal pay that now exists for women to black, Asian and minority ethnic or BAME workers for the first time under radical plans for a draft race um and that uh, would be brought uh, on by labor and this according to the guardian newspaper so according to this article in the guardian today the legal right which would follow a, a consultation with business groups uh, with business groups and unions would be phased in to give employers time to adapt to paying to paying all their staff fairly with back pay only available from when the law changes the change, which would also cover disabled people, would mean that equal pay claims on the basis of ethnicity and disability were treated the same as those made by women who were under the existing law have more stringent protections. Labour would also appoint a Windrush Commissioner if it won the general election to monitor the compensation scheme, which has faced criticism over its slow rollout and is threatened to move it out of the Home Office if it continues to fail. A commissioner would re-establish the Home Office team that was tasked with transforming the department after the scandal but was disbanded last year and act as a voice for the Windrush generation and their families as they pursue justice. Keir Starmer first promised a Race Equality Act in 2020 and later set up a task force, to Uh, chaired by Doreen Lawrence, but the party's failure to come forward with more detail had prompted concerns over its commitment to tackling structural racism. Inequality has risen over the last decade, with BAME families disproportionately hit by the pandemic and the cost of living crisis, as well as being on the sharp end of cuts to the NHS education and the criminal justice system. And Elise Dodds, the Shadow Women and Equality Secretary, said it has never been more important to deliver race equality. Inequality has soared under the Tories and too many black, Asian and ethnic minorities, minority families are working harder and harder for less and less. This is holding back their families and holding back the economy, she said. And then she added, we are proud of our achievements in a government from the Landmark Equality Act in 2010, to strengthening protections against discrimination, the next Labour government will go further to ensure no matter where you live in the UK and whatever your background is, you can still thrive. The proposals which the party will announce on Monday would enact protections against dual discrimination where people face prejudice. Because of a combination of protected characteristics that were originally in the Equality Act brought in by Harriet Harman back in 2010. So that is expected to be announced by labor um, this morning actually. Um, and uh, if you want more details, you can go into the Guardian online um, uh, online newspaper and you can have uh, a read-through. Right, anything else um, uh, that caught your eye uh, this morning, Imam Madan? Um,
2: yeah, in terms of his uh, <clears throat> Israel Gaza war, hmm. there is, seems to be a lot more pressure being pushed forward from uh, many officials, uh, and over 800 serving officials in, in, in the in the US and Europe as well have signed a statement Warning that their own government's policies on the Israel-Gaza war could amount to, they call it, grave violations of international law. And the, the uh, transatlantic statement, a copy of which was passed to the BBC, says their administrations risk being complicit in one of the worst human catastrophes of this century. But their, uh, their expert advice has been sidelined. It is the latest sign of significant levels of dissent within the government of some of Israel's key Western allies. Uh, One signature, one signatory to the statement, a U.S. government official with more than 25 years national security experience um, said that the voices of those who understand the region and the dynamics were not listened to. Uh, what's really different here is we are not failing to prevent something we are actively complicit that is fundamentally different from any other situation i can recall um so this also reminds me of the his holiness uh, hazam isma Ahmed may allah be his helper mentioning this in his friday sermon that uh, more and more people well which is you know quite late but they are realizing that uh, the power israel Israel has been given in this is is way too much Mm. and uh, we see slowly people the the people who are going against this uh, these policies are increasing uh, even in the higher higher uh, officials Uh, however it is still not enough I think Um, even though 800 sounds like a big number but uh, the problem is these 800 might not be at at the top top positions Mm -hmm. so I mean they can say whatever they want it's like you know the UN. They 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 make all these uh, policies and but nobody listens to them. Like they have no, uh, they have no
1: authority really. No authority, no almost no say in this as well. And they've yeah. been um, uh, almost sidelined. Well not, well, not almost. They've been sidelined uh, uh, now as well. Uh, UN resolutions are, um, are even security councils and resolutions binding are binding. Um, are are sidelined? Have been sidelined over the last few decades and uh, there is very little consensus on um, on what's to be done at the moment you know it's all already been what mm. three months uh, that the war has uh, has gone on and uh, 30, close to 30,000 people have died uh another 60,000 injured in one way or the other about eight or 9,000 uh, missing so we're talking about 100,000 people there i mean yeah uh, so in a short, a short time, exactly in just a, sh- a short amount of time. And when we talk of uh, proportionality, I mean, is this really proportional? Is the question uh, because uh, one thousand one hundred thirty-nine, I think, is the number of people that Israel has officially declared is the number of people who died as a result of the Hamas attack on um, uh, on October the seventh. And in in response, you know, you have thirty thousand dead. And uh, uh, almost 100,000 affected uh, by this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've really got a question. Uh, and, and, and still, there is no sign of this ending. Uh, m- most people in Gaza, I mean, Gaza is on the brink of starvation, according to the United Nations. Um, most people in Gaza are, um, are either on one meal a day. We were talking to the head of uh, Humanity First which is a charity the head of which actually has been able to go to Gaza last week and he Mm -hmm. told us that you will get that one meal a day if you're lucky
3: yeah
1: you will get the water uh, after um, standing in queue for four to five hours a little bit of water to drink if you're lucky Uh, you will only be able to get uh, a semblance of medical support, if you're injured, if you're lucky, because most of the hospitals have actually been bombed, uh, their yeah. infrastructure has been absolutely destroyed. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's a, and it's unfortunate that uh, 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 most countries, uh, most Western countries, I should say, in in the world, because yeah, there is a there is a big north south divide here. A lot of countries in the south. <coughs> Uh, well, uh, support um, uh, the Palestinian cause here. Support uh, the right of Palestine to have a separate state, their their right of self determination. Um, South Africa, of course, brought that case against uh, Israel in the ICJ, mm. and uh, the International Court of Justice did announce provisional measures, which said that um, they there may be plausible genocide taking place in Gaza at the moment so I mean there, there's a lot there but unfortunately uh, our own government here in the UK the US Germans uh, and many others in the West continue to support this um, this war continue to support this onslaught um, in which many many thousands of innocent people are dying so one really wonders when and how this is going to end right I uh, so that was our um section um or discussion about what's appearing uh, or what's happening in the world of newspapers this morning um we shall now take a very very quick break and when we come back we will delve right into the first topic which is about children's mental health week do stay tuned
0: Allah. اشهد <تصفيق> ان
1: Voice of Islam Radio. as Alaikum. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is the 5th of February 2024. The time is 7.26 a.m. and we are about to delve into the first topic. Usman what are we talking about?
2: Yes, as you mentioned, we are talking about uh, children's mental health uh, as this is the Mental Health Week. Uh, which is an, an an annual campaign dedicated to raising awareness about the you know importance of children's uh, mental health and uh, their well-being and this week-long event aims to promote positive mental health among children and young people provide resources for parents and educators and uh, also reduce the stigma surrounding the mental health issues in children and uh, of course, we need these, um, you know, these campaigns to uh, remind ourselves again and again of the important things in our life um, and children being, uh, you know, at the very top of this list. Um, so in this segment, we will also uh, we will be discussing a little about this, disc- uh, about uh, children's uh, psychology, uh, how every child can be different and their needs can be different and uh, why there is a epidemic in poor mental health, especially among young, young children, and some of its causes as well. Uh, we'll be talking about some trauma and treatments for young people. Um, uh, we'll also address the question that, uh, you know, that why do children, or why do, does anyone, why is anyone born with these illnesses, um, uh, even though they they're not at fault? you know why does god make children um have uh, disabilities why are people born without limbs right. for example we we'll see
1: the message uh, around that question so yeah let's address that uh, as well um later on in this segment um yes so yeah interesting discussion so this is actually the children's mental health weekend and, and Child psychology is the study of psychological processes of children and specifically how these processes differ from those of adults and how they develop from birth to the end of adolescence and how and why they differ from one child to the next. Also called development psychology, children typically read development milestones. These milestones reflect abilities, such as walking and talking. They're achieved by most children at similar ages. Amongst other things, we are interested in trying to explain how children reach these milestones and how individual, social, and cultural factors may influence how we develop. During these developmental milestones, These are there are those children who uh, have childhood trauma Uh, and may have mental and physical disabilities, which prevent normal development. And in some cases, uh, that can also lead to poor mental health. So mental health is an individual's cognitive, behavioral, and emotional well-being. It's something we all have, including every child uh, as well as young person. We use the term mental health issues to refer to mental health problems, conditions, mental illnesses. These issues may or may not be medically diagnosed. Mental disorders can begin in childhood. Examples include anxiety disorders, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, autism spectrum disorder, depression and other mood disorders, eating disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Without treatment, these mental health conditions can prevent children from reaching their full potential. Children's, uh, child mental health suffer- sufferers are also more likely to suffer from mental health conditions as adults. Mental health of children and young people in England, uh, twenty twenty. The report um, in twenty twenty two follow up follows up uh, from 20, 2017 NHS report and states that eighteen percent um of children aged 7 to 16 in um in 2022 and 22% of young people aged 17 to 24 years had a probable mental health disorder in children aged 7 to 16 years rates rose from 1 in 9 that's about 12% in 2017 to 1 in 6 or 16% in 2020 rates of probable mental disorders then remain stable between uh, between 2020 and 2022. Rates were also stable between 20 and 21, but then increased from one in six in 2021 to one in four in mm-hmm. 2022. So that's a pretty significant um, uh, jump there as well.
2: Yeah, I think these numbers in the in the COVID times are, um, you know, th- you can't really assess them. Because the conditions changed so much that uh, many people who didn't have any mental health issues developed some, mm. and some who um, even the data—I mean, it was—it would have been difficult to gather at that time. Um, so maybe a lot of these numbers are worse than than we have, and some are mm. some are you know made to sound worse than they are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's now go uh, straight to our first guest for this segment. Who is Kemi Omijay? Kemi Omijay is an experienced um, registered psychotherapist and clinical supervisor who has worked with children and families for over 14 years. She's also a trainer and speaker, with her specialist subjects uh, being cultural competence, r- racial identity, racial trauma, and anti-racist practices in education. As-salamu alaykum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Breakfast Show
4: good morning thank you for having me
1: good morning uh lovely to have you kemi so um, um tell us a little bit about firstly about the british association for counseling and and psychotherapy uh and particularly its focus on child psychology
4: okay so the british association for counseling which is BACP for sure is an association for registered therapies and counsellors practising in the u k it's a really good starting point for if for any individual considering. Um, getting therapists or getting um, more information on psychological therapies and they have a specific um, focus or kind of a branch that focuses on children's mental health Um, and they provide us with kind of a code of ethics and ways in which we practice working with young people for child and adolescent therapists but also provides information and resources for parents who might be wanting more information for their
1: child. What are the main barriers that prevent parents or guardians from seeking psychological help for their children?
4: So I think most parents want the, want to help their children and want the best for their children. Um, so when it comes to a young person struggling with their mental health, I think because of how it presents in children and young people, it's not always immediately apparent um, that it's a mental health difficulty. So that can be a, uh, um, a barrier whereby parents are thinking it could be something else or kind of continuing other options before they even consider psychological help. I think there's also a general lack of understanding and awareness about children's mental health in general um, and I think depending on your cultural background or kind of your your experience and your relationship with um, seeking psychological help there may be a stigma attached to it um, and then once you get to that point of deciding or, or feeling able to kind of seek psychological help for your child um, there's access to support sometimes that's barriers there could be financial barrier if you have to kind of go private or there can be long waiting list if you're kind of got using local authority service
2: Hmm. Uh, thank. Thank you, Miss Omija. Um, are certain communities more reluctant to seek child services, or is that you know general across the board? Um, do
4: you mean kind of child service in terms of mental health service, or just any kind of children's services?
2: Well, specifically mental health, but uh, Men- if you have data on the other ones, then you can share as yeah. well.
4: I think very broadly speaking, I think members of the global majority community, so by that I mean kind of black, brown and Asian families, yeah. there there can be certain barriers or certain reluctance to seeking um uh, support from children's services I think it's about perceptions of children's services um, and what how people view them um, I've worked with families or within communities that people assume that it might be a reflection of their parenting or they'll be judged by their parents as a result of their parenting and or we are linked to social care which we're not um, so I think if if you weren't born and raised in the UK um, following kind of Western cultural and expectations um, your your views and your relationship with children's services will be different so that will be the reluctance it doesn't necessarily mean members of those communities don't seek support for their children in other ways so people kind of sometimes they go to religious figures or kind of Mm -hmm. elders within the community it just means that the concept of children's services is new and different to them and there might be some kind of education and awareness um, that that can be done to kind of support members of that community to understand um children's services and offer kind of and children's services need to do some work to kind of offer community based services that is inclusive mm-hmm. and ensure that our practitioners are kind of culturally aware culturally sensitive so that they need to consider the things that might be difficult for members of that community to access help
2: mm mm-hmm. but then they they also as you mentioned might have this 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 thought that oh my child is fine, so what are some of the some of the like um you know key symptoms or what are some of the main main things you should look out for uh, that indicate that we should seek help now whether it's it's uh, urgent or not uh, it's time to ask an, uh, a professional
4: that's a very great question i think for me i always say so i'm 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 an expert in terms of children's mental health and psychological services but i actually do say that parents are the expert on their child so very broadly speaking it's anything that's out of or out of the ordinary for your child that has been persistent for a significant period of time so a significant period of time for me would be four weeks so if you for example you've got four weeks of your child acting out of character um their moods are irregular irregular their behavior patterns has changed you are just concerned you have your parental intuition and you just there things that they're doing and saying or acting out that just feels concerning to you I think there's no harm in asking for help Mm -hmm. I think sometimes you also get feedback from the school or or professional feedback from the school and actually that might be your first starting point when you're starting to think something's not quite right here feel free to um, contact any professionals that work with your young person it could be the nursery um, the childminder the teacher and just kind of get their feedback Depending on the age of the child, I think it's also okay to ask the child how they're feeling in themselves because mm-hmm. they are also a great advocate for themselves. I think once children are given the space to express what's going on for them internally, emotionally, they will they will say and then you, you can kind of take your indication from that.
2: Mm-hmm. And what's your opinion on, on uh, what what are the main mental health issues children are facing today? Um, oh gosh,
4: yeah. that's a good question Um, so actually I caught I caught your um, your conversation just before I came on and I think Mm. post COVID um, there is actually a rise in anxiety and I don't I think my description of COVID is that COVID has kind of been like a magnifying um, glass for kind of whatever difficulties you've been having whether it's been financial for adults or kind of loneliness for adults but for children and young people anxiety is quite common Um, anxiety in different forms so from an increase We've had an increase in emotional-based school avoidance uh, and social anxiety. So emotional-based school avoidance are children that are feeling particularly anxious to go to school. And there might not be a specific external reason for that. There might just be an internal emotional reason for that other things that are, that are, seems to be an increase so anxiety is one of them I think changes in the family home and dynamics always impact on children and young people and we underestimate the impact on children and young people children are sponges they observe the environment around them particularly because of you your primary caregivers so if you're their parent and yes. you're going through a separation or cost of living crisis or even a bereavement that you think oh it's my it's my parent it's not going to affect my mm-hmm. my child um actually your child is watching you and your child is noticing that you are struggling and that often impacts them so often when children and young people come to me um they are telling me things that they're worried about in terms of what they've observed in their in the gender family dynamics Um, and one of the ways that I say I encourage parents to respond to that is just giving children age-appropriate information where possible and then for me specifically a lot of my client base um, um, is working with young people who have experienced racism and or need support for their self-esteem as a result of their racialized experiences. I think post-COVID, post post, um, the murder of George Floyd, I think there's been a lot of being young people feeling able to just name some of the experiences they have anyway, and parents feeling that actually we need to seek ex- um, we need to seek support for our child. It's not normal. We're not just going to accept this. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what about social media and social media in particular? What's oh, sort- I- yeah go ahead
4: so yeah i was going to say yeah social media is an interesting one because one of the things i say is that social media the actual phone and the social media is an inanimate an object it's how the young person uses it so for me a young person already struggling with their mental health can uh, can use their social media in, in in a way that's not helpful for their mental health and can exasperate their mental health can, so can i can i, I give
1: it sorry uh, oh. sorry to interrupt can i give a slightly different spin to this question and and sure. can i just say that uh, or ask uh, is it possible that social media perhaps uh, entices an individual to use it in a, in a manner that it's not supposed to be used, given how the algorithm is built?
4: absolutely so that's that's basically that's where i was heading i think i think if a young person is struggling with their mental health anyway so for example if a young person is having low mood or low self-esteem the kind of things that they search or they're drawn to on social media might not be the things that are in the best interest of them and the algorithms then speaks to them or speaks speaks that like, like understands what they're speaking and reinforces that messages so but if you're a young person that is actually have overall good mental health and well-being you may be just looking at, I don't know, videos of cats being silly, that's fine but I think what my experience with talking with young people is if they're struggling with their self-esteem they find themselves drawn to people that they're comparing themselves to hmm. or they're aspiring to and they're looking at this life that is not real and then that kind of exasperates what's there. I don't think social media in isolation alone cause it contributes to mental health but I absolutely think it can exasperate it. I think if a young person is struggling with their mental health, one of the questions I ask in my uh, in my therapy room as part of the assessment is how much time you, are you spending on social media? And we go into detail about what content they're watching and what type of social media. So Instagram versus TikTok. TikTok or versus snapchat they're very different platforms and the way in which young people engage with them is very different so i think it's we're right to be looking at social media and the relationship it plays with within a young person's mental health but it needs to be kind of an ongoing dialogue with a young person about how they're engaging with it sure
1: excellent thank you very much kemi thank you very much for joining us this morning have a lovely day and the rest of the week peace be with you. you Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was Kemi Omiche, who is an experienced registered psychotherapist and clinical supervisor who's worked with children and families for over 14 years. Let me go straight now to our second guest, who's Lynn Moore. And Lynn is an educational uh, psychologist with over 30 years experience working locally and nationally to offer services to families, schools and local authorities. As-salamu Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Lynn. Um, uh, tell us about um, uh, the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, um, and, a, and indeed an educational psychologist.
3: Okay, well, um, let's start with a psychiatrist, which I am not. A psychiatrist is a doctor, a medical doctor, who studied medicine, and has then chosen to specialize in uh, the field of mental health, mental illness, and the conditions that affect people in in those ways. Uh, And and, and because they are medical doctors, they can diagnose conditions and they can prescribe medication. Psychologists on the other hand, and I'm one, um, are social scientists. They study um, and they research human action, human behavior uh, and uh, recommend actions accordingly. I mean there's a big overlap between what psychologists professional psychologists do and what psychiatrists do but that's the difference, that's the essential difference An educational psychologist that's me, specialises in child development uh, and particularly how children and young people learn so a lot of their work is involved in schools and working with schools to help children, particularly children who, ha- who have special educational needs.
2: Mm-hmm thank you dr Lin. uh this this year's theme for this uh, for the children's mental health week is my voice matters so yeah. w- what's the importance of uh, of of uh, listening to your children um uh, because sometimes we think they i mean they're too young they don't know uh, what they're talking about so uh, why is it so important to actually listen to the child well, that has to
3: start really from the really from birth, um, you know, early childhood. Uh, that that's one one of the the ways language will develop because parents will listen to the child, hear what the child is trying to say, model what 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 uh, they think the child is trying to say, and that's how children learn to to talk. The most important skill that human beings can ever learn. But in terms of mental health and mental well-being, listening to children and letting them talk and being aware of what they're saying and reacting to that is absolutely crucial to the child developing a very, very positive relationship with the parent. Um, so really, you can't start early enough with that to listen, to, to stop, you know, put the phones down and I know that's difficult for many people. Mm-hmm. When the child wants to talk to stop uh, to stop whatever it is you're doing if you can and, and just give them the, your full attention and then they feel valued and then by the very act of talking they can start to access their own feelings and their own thought and start to get insight into who they are and what they are as a human being so that's why it is crucial to encourage children to talk and give them that voice and value and respect that voice Mm-hmm
2: Uh, And, you know, life is becoming increasingly complicated with the advancement of technology. How is this impacting mental health? Um, We have been speaking earlier as well about... Yeah, I came in on the end
3: of that conversation, exactly, yes. Well, it does, and I mean, I think your previous guest had lots and lots of things to say about that from her personal experience, Um, particularly the use of social media, particularly with young people in schools, uh, you know the mobile phone is is way often the way that kids can be part of a social group but it but it's uh, you know so it's valuable in that respect, but it can be a really it can be an instrument really of creating uh distress and fear and anxiety through through bullying um and if If your child is being bullied in any sense of the word, then go to the school and tell them what's going on. Schools have a big part to play in stopping that. Happening.
2: Mhm. And what patterns or signs should parents be aware of to reach out professional help? Um, okay.
3: Well, obviously, it, it's it's an incredibly complex field. This, and it all depends on children who are individuals have their own patterns, and it's different for for young children and for for older kids. But things like unusual behaviour, like lots and lots of meltdowns, temper tantrums, um, rage um disobeying is one 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 symptom of the fact that the child is just overwhelmed with their emotions and the parents got to find out what the source of that is um and that's particularly true with, with uh, older children who can perhaps then start to talk and say what, what is upsetting them. Sometimes children are, won't talk easily, so parents have to look out for other things like um, sleep problems is a big one. You know, having nightmares, mm-hmm. showing distress, you know, at that point. Um, I'm trying to think of of other ways. It depends. all depends on the child, you know. Unusual mm. behavior, really.
2: Yeah, it's probably um, very like individual, of course. Yeah, it uh, is, but, yeah. But these uh, the dreams one is a new one for me. So uh, nightmares, it's, it's, is that a bad Yeah, thing?
3: that's one, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, particularly young children, and often they wake up mm-hmm. and they, they just talk, and the parent must just comfort and listen and often can pick up the clue as to what's causing the distress. Mm-hmm. Um, bed, wetting, anything that's, again, unusual behavior all of those things as well as what the child is telling you can show that there's something wrong mm-hmm.
2: and then uh, what strategies or coping mechanisms uh, can be used by parents to um, you know make, like make sure that children speak out about these things so they can assess this and and take it to the professionals
3: well it, it depends again on the parenting style i mean some parents are very um, Used to cuddling their children and hugging them and kissing them and showing that you know that affection and that's that's great um, if you can do that. Some parents find that hard to do and the families some families and don't have that as a as a sort of habit of behaving. But but really, as I've said before, just making ha- the time to listen, to stop and and to just give the child full attention and and offering comfort. Through words, um, sometimes through through touch, through through hugging. Um, but there are there, there there are some situations when that can actually make things worse. I'm thinking, in particular, mm-hmm. when children are refusing to go to school, um, and parents can get very very worried and anxious. And they'll show that anxiety by um, encouraging the child to talk. And actually, that can create a kind of really vicious cycle because if there's this strong bond between the child and the parent, the child sees the parent getting upset and thinks, oh, my goodness, mum or dad, is, is up, there's a problem. And then they get more upset. So mm-hmm. they then show their distress by crying and whatever. And then the parent gets more anxious and upset and shows it in their facial expression and the things they say so that's one one sort of thing that you've got to be really really careful about it's specific to, to if the child is refusing to go to school mm-hmm. but in all other circumstances show that empathy uh, and comfort and, and be an adult don't let yeah. the child make important decisions take the pressure off and say don't worry um I'm here, I'm mum, I'm dad. You don't have to do this. I'm making this decision for you and it'll be okay. So offer that reassurance.
2: Great, amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Lynn. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, oh, thank, thank, you thank you for enlightening you. us about this topic so much.
3: Well, thanks for asking me on and uh, have a good day.
1: Thank
2: <laughs> you. You too. Have a lovely day. Thank, you very, very with you.
1: thank you very much. Uh, Bye-bye. So, so that was... Uh, Lynn Moore, who is, Dr. Lin is an educational psychologist with over 30 years experience. Uh, let me now go straight to our last guest for this segment uh, and that's James Emmet. James is a qualified counsellor and clinical supervisor with over 15 years experience working with children and young people. James joined Place to Be in 2013 and holds national responsibility for the group's work. As-salamu alaykum. peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show.
0: Assalamu alaikum for you and all your listeners. Thanks so much for having me on today.
1: Lovely to have you, James. Thanks very much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about Place to Be.
0: Well, I mean, we're we're absolutely blown away that you're shining a light on the wellness of children today. What brilliant guests you've had on already this morning, Kelly. Thank you. I've been listening to them. Fantastic programme. Place to Be, we're a a children's mental health charity. We've been around 30 years. Uh, which is actually a really long time when it comes to children's mental health based in schools and communities. And we're the, actually we're the founder of Children's Mental Health Week, which is this week, as you've been saying with your guests. And it's all about really listening to young people and what they need uh, in these new and challenging times.
2: Mm-hmm. Is it is it really that important to have a whole week for you know children's mental health?
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, we know that there's so many conflicts and crises and issues in the world today it's hard for i know i find it hard to pay attention to all of it at once um and that's why i think there's off there's different weeks and different special days that come on it's just an opportunity for us all to pause and reflect and just think about what might be going on in one of those areas and and let's be honest it's it's hard work being a parent it's hard work Mm. being a teacher you know and, and we've all got our own struggles and um, so we thought let's let's have a week where we can even a place to be really focus in on what's going on and choose a different theme that's relevant to what's going on at the time so yeah we, we chose this week 10 years ago and it's just gone from we were to be fair we were really blown away by the engagement uh, of it it's gone mm-hmm. you know worldwide and we've got royalty film stars tv stars and Thousands of the amazing members of the public joining in every 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 year and, and using all the activities on our website, Children's Mental Health Week.
2: Mm, that's amazing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you do your therapy, your counselling? Uh, is, is it a group based? Is it individual? Which methods do you use?
0: Yeah, well, it's, we, we try and be as flexible as as possible. Um, you know, place to be uh, schools that we're based in are very special places we're mm-hmm. in over 550 across the uk which is you know huge for for, for what we do and like, children's are absolute children are absolute gifts we love them deeply but as i said raising them is hard work and so is teaching them and there's an african proverb which i always think about which says it takes a whole village to raise a child and that's why we mm-hmm. work with parents the community teachers and we offer support and guidance our special way that we've developed over 30 years is not sort of parachuting in and, and doing something to the kids not sort of, if there's something wrong like it's, look, we'll come and rescue the day it's, it's a whole school, a whole community approach to keeping our amazing young people mentally well and emotionally healthy even during these tough times
2: mm-hmm. Great, and uh, you know, um, what projects or initiatives uh, has placed to be organised specifically for this week?
0: Well, we often like to keep some of them a surprise, especially if there's royalty (laughs) involved. But we've already got on our website, which is childrensmentalhealthweek.org.uk, we've got clips and videos. We've got BAFTAs, young TV presenters, uh, Jiraiya Kabusi and Precious Asa. They're chatting to film and TV stars. We've got a message from Elmo from Sesame Street. Um, We've got (laughs) the Young Voices Choir. Uh, We've got TV celebrity Roman Kemp's recorded important conversations about mental health. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg each day there'll be new and amazing things but and it's great to have all of these really um, high-profile important people involved but what's amazing is that we've got an interactive map on our website that anybody can go on and you can add your own activities about what your listeners are doing for Children's Mental Health Week Um, and it really puts you on literally puts you on the map but also it builds a big movement. There's a huge amount of people all getting involved this week. So I can't wait to see mm-hmm. what other people
2: do. Great. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you're doing great work and you're having like a, a lot of, a lot of uh, publicity and doing amazing. So thank you for joining us at The, at the Breakfast Show and giving us oh. some of your precious time. Uh, thank you. hope Salaam you have alaikum. a lovely day. Peace be with you. Thank, thank you. Wa you Take care. Bye.
1: So, that was James Emmet who is a qualified counselor and clinical supervisor with over 15 years experience working with children and young people. Um, there was, um, uh, you know, the the topic of social media um, or the interaction relationship between social media and mental health children or adults, actually, I would think, uh, especially young adults, I think is, uh, is an interesting one. And, mm-hmm. I, and I I've got to say that I have a... Slightly different feel um, on this, and 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 my view is that you know social media can be a slippery slope. So even if you are in the best of mental health, sometimes you know you just yeah. uh, even as an adult, I find you know it's a, you know you just, you just click on it. The algorithm is just so good. Even if you click on a video once, you know it'll keep on um, uh, YouTube will uh, or TikTok or others will actually or Instagram for that matter will keep on recommending videos, and before you know it, you've spent a couple of hours, wasted a couple of hours on social media, uh, a lot of which sh- can actually be negative. And you know, sometimes yeah. I need to to really correct myself, and 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 that's something that it, and that sort of a decision uh, could be very difficult for a child, especially. And I would also think that a child would. Um, it, it, uh comparing oneself with with somebody else you know that's that's a natural that's natu- that's a natural thing and i guess most children would be inclined to begin to start um, comparing themselves with others and and therefore Enter into that zone of that slippery slope on social media, where you know you go and you you're seeing what others are wearing or what others are doing and how they're making the hair or how they're wearing the makeup for girls mm-hmm. and for boys, so many other things.
2: Yeah, you know, sometimes when you talk about something so much, you, you start feeling you might you might have it as well. Yeah. Uh, I think you know during COVID, for example, everybody was having a course. Even if you coughed, well, if you if had, you just had a simple flu, you yeah. thought like that's it, I'm I'm gone. I've yeah. COVID. Um, so, I think in this regard, uh, talking too much about something is also not good. Uh, also, mention the positive parts. Mention, like, the solutions, how to get out of it, how to um, make sure you're not trapped in this loop. Uh, in this, the same way, getting out of social media, these loops. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a very challenging time, I think. Like, social media, hmm. even though it has so many good sides, so many benefits, but... Um, you you it can't does avoid exactly the There's yeah,
1: got to be, I think, yeah, some sort of a control as far as I think, especially for, for children um, uh, when it comes to social media. Right. Uh, we are coming up to the 8 o'clock news. And when we come back, there is this one question that we were asked earlier on uh, by uh, somebody who's listening into the show, which is about why is it that some children are born with with mental health problems or born with, with physical disabilities, for example, uh, as well. So, And what's the Islamic um, standpoint or viewpoint on that? And that's something that we shall definitely discuss when we come back from the news break. We are this morning talking about children's mental health. This is the Children's Mental Health Week. And uh, in about uh, 10 minutes' time, we will start our second topic, which is about equality in caring responsibilities. The number to call, once again, is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Please do uh, stay tuned. We will be back right after these messages and the news break. You're listening to Voice of Islam, online, on mobile.
2: allah
1: Of Islam Radio. Alaikum Warahmatullahi May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. This morning we we're talking about children's mental health. And before we went on to the news break, we were talking uh, to three guests um, who came on and, and talked about. Uh, what is what are the various factors? What's causing uh, children m- children's mental health issues, um, and what can we actually do about it? We were asked a question by um, a caller, and that question was around disabilities, uh, children's disabilities. So the question, uh, uh, the question I think, as I was able to understand it, was why some people are uh, some children are born with mental health or mental disabilities or physical disabilities, uh, for that matter? And what's the uh, response to that? And and before I hand it over to you, uh, Imam Anan, and I guess my simple take on that is that uh, the Islamic philosophy dictates that this life is a very small part of our overall spiritual existence. So um, you know, just if if you're if you're trying to um, compress the life of a person in uh, in a day, uh, I think there is a hadith or tradition of the Holy Prophet as well. You know, just consider it as as a a very um, uh, as as a as a fraction of a second. That is the length of this life uh, as part of our overall. uh, spiritual existence so that's the Islamic philosophy and then God will compensate you later on in in your um, in your next life because your overall spiritual existence is a much much longer spiritual existence and and this life according to the Islamic philosophy is supposed to be a test for everyone and you come here with and it's a test for those uh, as well who, uh, who've who been given full faculties and those who've, who've been given less faculties and they will be uh, compensated in, in the next life it's it's how you use the faculties that you've been given in this life in this very short a fraction of a second, um, uh, to use that uh, particular metaphor, in that um, in the during the length of a day, and then you will be compensated for that um, during throughout the day. So yeah, if if I was um, to look at it that way, um, and if I was tested by my parents, by teachers, or even by society for a fraction of a uh, of a second during the day, and if I will have the reward uh, for all for how I behave during that fraction of a second. F- for the rest of the day, I would take that every day. Imam, Yeah, and, uh, perfectly yeah. explained. Uh, of course, I mean, this is the voice
2: of Islam. If you, if you want to understand this question from the Islamic view, you have to understand what, what Islam is and what we mm. believe in. And first of all, we believe that God Almighty, who is the creator of this world, is absolutely perfect, and He has created us. Mm. So, first of all, God created us. And God himself has mentioned in the Holy Quran that he loves his creation, mm. you know, more than a mother can love a child. And there is a design for for, for Yes, and for there's a way God has designed us. Mm. Now, there is that that question that, uh, you know, if one person is born healthy, the other person is not born mm. with, with a disability or mental health, that's unfair.
1: Similarly, okay. if one person is is yeah. rich, you can say, why, and the other person yeah, is yeah, poor. Any, that's any inequality exactly.
2: it yeah. would be unfair. But it would only be unfair if we, if we constrict our view to this world. Mm. Okay, now if I don't have money in this world and you're a very rich person, to be honest, me personally, I'm, I, I'm not jealous, you know. Mm. I'm not uh, in, at, in a disadvantage. And the reason is because I believe in something different. Mm. I don't believe money will give me ultimate happiness. Mm. I believe ultimate happiness is in following God Almighty and following His commandments. So if that disabled person believes in God, he, will, he, he, he can be assured that whatever disability he has, whatever mental health, whatever difficulty is going through, through life, uh, uh, Allah Almighty will recom- recompensate him mm. in the next world. Yeah. This, is his, this is his test which he, ha- he has created. Correct. And God Almighty mentions in the Holy Quran that even life and death God has created and for the reason to, to test you, you know, when, when somebody takes away your parents, how do you behave? Mm. Do you say that, do you, you know, uh, stop believing in God just because you lost one thing? Mm. Now, if we, because if, we, we look from the outside, we look at the disabled person, we think, oh, a poor person, he's going through this. And that. there's many disabled people, they, they don't feel that we're disabled. They say, don't call us disabled.
1: Mm. There's so many able, athletes
2: yeah. with, uh, they don't have legs. And they're doing push-ups. They're, mm. they're competing in competitions. Correct. So we have to look at this from from the angle that Islam represents. Uh, that first of all, that God has created us. If God has put any deficiency in anything, he will uh, recomp- recompensate it in the hereafter. Because we believe in a life after death. We believe yeah. that even if, if if we die in this world, our actions, our good deeds, as I mentioned, in, which we could do in this limited time, mm. Will reflect our reward in the next world. Right. And uh, uh, just for the listener, I would recommend two books. One is uh, a, a masterpiece by His Holiness Hazrat Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge, and Truth, mm. where he has addressed the the question of suffering. Yeah. You know that the, some atheists object that uh, why is if, there suffering? In the why world? is there suffering in this world? Mm. That means there is no God. Correct. uh You know, what one quick answer you could give to. As, an, as a, as a, you know, a counter argument is that okay you don't believe in God so according to you there's no God then explain to me why is, why is there still suffering in the world if mm-hmm. there's no God they won't have an answer
1: mm.
2: because suffering is there I, I, I actually think suffering is the proof of existence of God
1: because, because you will be compensated for that yes. suffering in in, in the and next uh, world, yeah, the or, or not suffering as well, for that matter. Because you know, if you, you to go back to your earlier example, if got, if you've got a lot of money, it's it's about how you use that money mm. and that wealth and that privilege in this life. Yeah, and then again, if if there is no suffering,
2: if we equal, how do you know that suffering? Mm. Why do you think a, a person who has a mental health issue, because we perceive him to be lower than us, we perceive him to be more unfortunate than us. Okay, we only have this perception because we have good health. Mm-hmm. So if there wasn't this difference of good health and bad health, there if would everybody be no is comparison.
1: Equal, if everybody has the same yeah. world, same level of intelligence, same no physical comparison. abilities, I mean, there would be there would be no progress in the world. yeah, there would be I no think, progress, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, And then, yeah,
2: there, that's that's why you need these differences. Yeah, you, absolutely. You need uh, uh, somebody. You, you would you wouldn't feel poor if you never saw someone richer than you.
1: Correct. Right. I think the the uh, the aspect that you are pointing to is um, is again uh, mentioned very very clearly and explained a, uh, in a lot more detail and a lot better um, in the book Revelation Rationality Knowledge and Truth, which you can actually go to www. dot org and you can actually download that book uh, from there. And uh, to, uh, to the point that you are making, it's it's about uh, it's about no pain, no gain. So you know, pain and progress have been have been intertwined in life have been combined mm-hmm. by god in life so you, you know you the mother has to go through the uh, the pangs of childbirth the mother has to go through uh, the pangs of pregnancy to bring up a child in, in this world uh, similarly whenever there is pain or suffering there is pro- a, a very good example of that is the covid vaccine during the co- the, the time of um, this great pandemic that we had only a couple of years ago um they was able to uh, the world of science was able to progress a lot faster in mm-hmm. terms of producing a vaccine a time the time was shortened a lot from uh, from what's what was then ever before because there was a lot of pain in, uh, going on in the world mm-hmm. so pain and progress is our uh, are, way are interlinked I, I'm also reminded of uh, this quote by uh, a former u.s president uh, I think uh, it was Nixon and uh, he said that unless you've been to the deepest valleys, you would never know how beautiful it is to be on the highest mountain. So, mm. you know, the two the two things are 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 very interlinked. It's, there's got to be difference in this world for for there to be progress, for there to be for the society uh, to progress. But yes, I would mm. absolutely recommend uh, going. there yeah, uh, the, the second
2: oh. book uh, yeah. when I want to mention is it, it's called Our God, uh, by the second caliph uh, of uh, the Hamdi movement, Hazrat Miza Bashir Ahmed. May Allah be pleased with him, uh, which also discusses this question and many other objections people have about God, and He beautifully explains how you know how God designed this world and what He requires from us. Right. Our God,
1: brilliant! And you can download both of these books by going to www.alislam.org. That's one word, al as an a l i s l a m. dot o r g. Um, and go into the book section and then you can you can easily download both of these books. Um, the names, once again, are religion, uh, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth and the second one is Our God. Right, and that um, concludes our discussion on the first segment, which was about children's mental health. We will swiftly go on to our second segment, which is about equality in caring responsibilities. So what are we talking about here, Imam Manan?
2: Yes, we're talking a bit more about equality. And in this segment, we are focusing a little bit on, on gender roles and uh, equality in terms of gender. And uh, what does Islam represent? Uh, you know, what is what is true equality or equity? And uh, this segment will look at the progression of equality with regards to house chores and carer responsibilities. Uh, so far, the progress has been uh, classed as slow and uh, men have a lot of hurdles uh, While wanting to fulfill their share of home responsibilities, and uh, we we have uh, you know quite a number of guests for this as well, and uh, uh, I've spoken to one of the guests earlier as well, um, so we'll play those also. Correct, it's exactly. So let's program. let's
1: uh, absolutely play that uh, interview. So that uh, was with um, a gender expert, uh, Kate Mangina, who uh, who works to change harmful social norms through writing, training, and facilitations. Let's listen in.
5: thank you for joining us uh, uh, thank you first of all for having this interview with us uh, how are you today?
6: I'm fine thank you how are you today?
5: I'm also good thank you very much so uh, we, we're we having a show and, on the Voice of Islam radio and we are talking about uh, gender equality and in mm-hmm. this regard um, I'm aware you have written a book which is called Equal Partners I, I believe uh, could you tell us a little bit about, about this book and um, how you you know, how you start writing it maybe and uh, what is this book about?
6: Of course. Um, And just to confirm, this is being recorded for tomorrow. Is that correct?
5: Uh, Yes.
6: Okay. Um, I started researching my book because for years I have worked in international development and um, to Africa and Asia and Central America and I would work with communities about gender equality and especially talking to men about, um, you know, definitions around masculinity and how that can lead to gender equality. Um, but at the same time, when I was playing with my kids on the playground back in the United States or having a family dinner, I realized that I was able to have really sophisticated conversations around the world about gender. But with my friends and my family, we still had so much gender inequality in the United States, and I didn't have a way to talk about it. And so, this book was a way to bridge my personal life with my work, and sort of try to talk about the importance of gender equality in the United States and Canada, and um, hopefully elsewhere as well.
5: Mm-hmm. And and uh, what does what does the book contain? Um, did you take a specific aspect, or is it more of a sure. personal?
6: So I decided to, it's not a memoir, it's um, a research, it's a nonfiction book and I decided to focus in on gender equality in the household. I think there's a lot being written and researched right now about gender equality in in the professional space. So I decided to tackle the personal space and to do so I wanted to take an appreciative approach. So instead of talking about a theory or something that might happen someday. I found and interviewed 40 men who um, live in the United States and Canada who mm-hmm. already live gender equal lives with their with their spouse or partner. So, and the way I define that is that they do um, about half of the physical and cognitive labor and caregiving in their home. So, I understand. I'm I'm married. I've been married for 18 years now, and I understand that it's not very um, likely that you're going to follow each other around with a checklist or an Excel sheet. It's not about, it's not about tracking day to day. It's really about when you look at your relationship, you know, long term, over the years, are you both doing the same amount of work in the home, um, making sure neither partner feels bitter or resentful towards the other one for not doing their fair share of caregiving and household work. And the 40 men that I interviewed, they were all partnered, and both them and their partners both worked outside the home. So both people, you know, were working a full-time work and both bringing income into the family. And so our conversations were about how they both contributed to um, household work and caregiving.
5: Mm-hmm, great. And, uh, I mean, uh, you personally are married as well, as you mentioned. Uh, what do you think uh, – Is is this the right approach, or do you think the more traditional approach of uh, men should be working and a woman should take care of the home, uh, do you think that has more benefits, or do you believe that there is no difference? Whichever approach you take, uh, it's it's a personal preference.
6: I think marriage is hard, and I think whatever way works for that individual couple is great. I would never be so egotistical is to suggest there is a better way or a worse Mm. way Um, for me I like I like to work being part of the economy um, being able to contribute professionally is very important to me and it's also very important to my husband and so I have found that because of gender norms and because of the assumption that women are better at household work and men are better at professional work we often fall into these patterns of women doing more in the home. And we do know there is a correlation to the more household work a woman does, the less opportunity they have in a professional space. We know that's true, right? And so I do think for families that when you have dual working families, um, I think it's worth talking about and I think it's worth considering, um, you know, not to just accept, norms and behaviors that we have seen role model to us from our parents and grandparents, but to at least have that conversation. And I think that's what I advocate more most of all is that instead of just doing yep. things by, um, just because we fall into a pattern, I just think it's great to talk about your partner, to talk about, sorry, talk with your partner yeah. about what you're ambitions are, what your household ambitions are, what your professional ambitions are. And actually what I found out from my research is that it actually was less about what women wanted to do in the professional space. And it really came down to what men wanted to do at home. What I found is that a lot of men want to have closer relationships with their kids. They want to spend more time at home. They want Mm -hmm. to be able to care for their aging parents They want to have those really close community relationships, but because there's such a huge burden on them to make a certain amount of money or work a certain amount of hours, they don't have the opportunity to do that. And sometimes men aren't allowed to be caregivers. You know, culturally we say, no, you are the one that's Mm. supposed to make the money. You leave the women to the caregiving, and that makes men sad and lonely. Um, And so what I found that actually is that you know, I think that gender equality, you know, at least talking about it so that everyone has the opportunity to voice their opinion and the opportunity to follow their dream, whatever their dream is.
5: Mm-hmm. So you're saying that uh, in your research you found that um, it's actually men who want to do more housework and want to do more, more uh, caring work. But uh, is, is that the same case with the woman? Like, uh, what is the percentage, if you have any stats, that uh, how many of the women, or how much do the woman want the husband to help them in the house um, compared to? I
6: don't have. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. have statistics like that. Um, I had I did qualitative research, not quantitative. So I don't have and I haven't seen those statistics coming from. Um, other people. I also feel like sometimes when you ask those questions without a conversation first, you get people who answer based on their, their, the norms that they sort of have fallen into, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that what is more important is just being aware of um, the fact that culturally we have been excluding men from caregiving work, that culturally we tend to overburden women with household work and that does impact what she can do in a professional setting and to just have conversations. What what do you want? If, if, the, if a partner's, you know, if a couple decides for one person to stay home with the kids and they can afford to only have one person work, you know, that's fantastic. I would never suggest they're doing the wrong thing. A lot of couples I know in the United States, I don't know about um, in other countries. I know England and Canada as well. The majority of couples have to both work that you just it's not Mm -hmm. possible to make enough money for one person to support a family that um, just inflation and cost of living. And so it's inevitable that both of you are going to have to earn money. And so what does that mean for household routines so that both of you have time for rest and both of you have time for hobbies and both of you have time for, um, you know, professional pursuits or, or time with your family?
5: Yeah. So, Kate, there is this um, new term going around, which is, you know, healthy masculinity. Um, Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about this term and uh, what's your viewpoint on this?
6: So I think the term healthy masculinity is probably reactive to the term toxic masculinity, which we've heard for longer. Toxic Mm -hmm. masculinity is is something that's perceived as negative. It's like the over-aggressive, violent, um trying to prove yourself um, sort of the loud um, the loud sort of personality that builds builds themselves up by putting other people down, right? Like the more I put women down, the more masculine I am. And I think that's been defined as toxic masculinity and 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 a lot of people myself included thought, okay, that's that's fine to have that word and that label, but you can't just tell people what not to do, right? We have yeah. to talk about what you should do, and so I think healthy masculinity is the flip side of that. And I'll also mention that to- toxic masculinity also plays into um, cultural and racial um, relationships and colonialism. I mean, a lot of times, you know, the the, the toxic masculine personalities. Um, are white, you know, and have a Western background and a Western culture. So it's not just about gender. It's intersectional, right? There's a lot of different complicated Mm -hmm. identities at play here, but a healthy masculinity I would say is, is the opposite. It's, It's when a man is able to be who he is and to be confident in his masculinity. If he's soft spoken, that's okay. If he's quiet, that's okay. If he's a nurturer and he loves to be a dad, that's okay. If he treats women with equality, that's okay. That all of those, they might not be a traditional definition of masculinity, but I think in 2024, what we're trying to say is, any way you want to be a man is okay, right? If you don't earn a lot of money, if you prefer the arts over sports, um, all of that is okay. Whoever you want to be, we accept you and we love you for it.
5: Great, thank you very much. I just want to leave you with with, uh, a saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam. Mm -hmm. He he said that like true strength is not that you overpower another person. True strength is that you are patient in in times of uh, difficulty. So we also believe like, uh, just as you're mentioning that masculinity does not mean, you know, you need to be strong, you need to be dominant and everything. There's so many aspects to it and um, Yes, we believe that sometimes being soft and humble is is more masculine than uh, you know being violent. Uh, but yes, yeah, so thank you very much for your time.
6: That's and very it was a pleasure beautiful. Speaking and to and you. I really yes, appreciate on. me and and I just want to add that um, of the forty men I spoke to, three of them weren't practicing Muslims, and I one of them I remember spoke to me very distinctly about um, the Prophet's words and how that has inspired him mm-hmm. to. Um, have a relationship with his wife. So it's it's truly beautiful and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today.
5: Thank you. Thank you for these uh, kind words as well. I uh, hope you have a lovely day and thanks again for your time. You too. And, uh, thank, thank you very so much. much. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: So that was our first guest uh, for this segment uh, who uh, spoke to us um, uh, yesterday, And uh, uh, that's uh, Kate Mangino, uh, who is a gender expert who works to change harmful social norms through writing, training and facilitation. Let's now go on uh, to our second guest, uh, who also um, is somebody we spoke earlier with. And that's uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Reem Shriki, who is a life devotee within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Let's listen into what she had to say.
7: So please could you tell us about the general teachings of Islam on gender equality?
8: Mm -hmm. You know, Islam is in fact the champion of, of equality of women. Allah says in the Holy Quran that men and women were created from a single soul. Islam gives also same rights to women as men and same rewards for men and women who do good deeds. However, Islam does distinguish that the, the responsibilities of men and women are different, and that is in accordance to the law of nature. So as women, we should be proud of the fact that we are different to men, that we have been given the responsibility of shaping the next generation. It is not demeaning, but empowering, because behind every great man, there is a great woman, a woman who gave birth to him, a woman who nurtured him and a woman who shaped him into who he is. Mm -hmm. So women's role is not just confined within home in Islam or just as mothers. Rather, throughout the ages, Muslim women have uh, have become doctors and nurses, teachers, scientists, jurists, leaders, and so on. And in the modern era, We see Ahmadi Muslim women are very useful members of society, and many of them work as doctors, lawyers, teachers, pharmacists, psychologists, and so on, to to name just uh, a few. And many of those who don't work are still useful members of the community and integrate and help their immediate communities, which in return helps to build a nation as women, are the nation builders, as His Holiness, the Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hadrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, once stated.
7: Absolutely. So, um, why do you think there's a common misconception about women in Islam being oppressed? Mm,
8: You know, in my opinion, this misconception is common in the West for two reasons. First and foremost, because of the influence of the Bible which instructed women to wear a head covering while praying or uh, prophesying, while men are to pray and worship with, with their heads uncovered. And the same passage of the Bible states that man is the head of a woman. Therefore, whosoever is not aware of the teachings of the Quran, looks at the hijab from the perspective of the Bible and thinks that Muslim women Uh, who these days are the most committed to to wear uh, the headscarf among all the followers of the religion, they think they are oppressed and uh, subservient to the men, like uh, the state of the Bible. On the other hand, I cannot of course deny the miserable condition of women in some Islamic countries, such as Afghanistan under the rule of the Taliban, and the compulsory imposition of the hijab in both Iran and Saudi Arabia, although now Saudi Arabia may be out of this. But even though I can say that women in Iran and Saudi, they study, they work, and they have a lot of rights, but this compulsory imposition of religion makes others think that this is part of Islam and that Muslim women are persecuted. So here I have to clarify that although the hijab is an obligation, but no one has the authority to impose any Islamic obligation on anyone, whether it is the hijab, the prayer, fasting, or anything else. As the Holy Quran clearly stated, there is no compulsion in religion.
7: Right. So um, can you let our listeners know if Islam prohibits men from helping in caring and um, carrying responsibilities of household chores,
8: for example? Uh, you know, the opposite is true. Islam encourages men to help in the household chores, following the example of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him, who used to mend himself his shoe when needed or sew his clothes if uh, they required repair. And he helped in the daily chores of the house. His wife, Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, is reported to have said that the Holy Prophet used to help us in the household chores it never even occurred to him that he was a great and very elevated being.
5: So,
7: how do you think we can change opinions on um, societal norms that have nothing to
8: do with Islam? Um, What do you think can be done? I think as Muslims, we have to introduce the wonderful teachings of Islam on all platforms. And that Islam and the Holy Prophet of Islam are the champions of women. And we must talk about the wonderful example of the Holy Prophet peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him as a father, husband, leader, brother, friend, neighbor, etc. So we must also present our good examples and our actions must be consistent with the teachings of Islam.
7: Perfect. Um, well, thank you, Jazakallah, um, for joining us and we look forward to having you on the show again in the future.
1: So that was Mrs. Reem Shariki, who is a life devotee within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and uh, was giving us uh, her take on the topic at hand. Let's now go straight to our next guest, uh, who is now live with us, and that's Mahjubeen al And uh, Mahjabin is the Regional Policy Advisor on Women's Economic Envo- Empowerment for United Nations Women's... East and Southern Africa Regional Office. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the breakfast show. Wa
8: alaikum salam.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, tell us about firstly about the United Nations Women's East and Southern Africa Regional Office. Uh, wh- what uh, uh, what does the Women's Economic Empowerment um, Unit uh, do?
9: Sure, thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity to be on this show with you. Um, so UN Women is a the United Nations entity for gender equality and the empowerment of women. Um, the entity was established in 2011 by a General Assembly decision, so all the countries, all the member states, um, decided that this was uh, something that was important, and that a special uh, UN entity needed to be established around this um, right. to look at how we can support women's empowerment across the world. Um, so UN Women works in several different areas, um, and one, so the areas that we work in include uh, women's peace, women in peace and security elimination of violence against women, uh, women in leadership and political participation, women in humanitarian settings, uh, and we also look at uh, gender statistics so that we can have uh, more information. And then the, the last one that I'll talk about is women's economic empowerment, which is the work that I lead for the East and Southern Africa region. Which is which covers this. I, so I, in my portfolio, I cover about 25 countries on the eastern, southern part of uh, Africa. And here we look at three sort of major areas of work, um, and and this is global work. Um, so the one is looking at women in the in the world of work. So how we support women, whether they're entrepreneurs or whether they're in the formal workspaces. Um, how do we make them, uh, you know, safer for women, better for women, but also looking at how we bring in a change in dynamics of the there's more gender equality within um, the world of work. Um, The second area that we look at is uh, women in a changing climate um, and here uh, it also looks very much at the role of women in rural areas as well, where a lot of women are, for example, working in the agriculture sector and has implications for, um, you know, access to water, for agriculture and and other such things, where we see that because of the changing climate patterns, there might be a reduction in the productivity of the farms uh, which would then have implications for the household food and and uh, and you know the food that's available for for the people, and also the food that the the crops that the women are able to sell uh, for the mark in the market to be able to get money for their families and the third area is called the care economy which i suspect we'll talk a bit more about today as well um which looks really at the the unpaid care and domestic work um that women do um and how that uh, impacts their lives how that impacts our societies um and what that means more broadly also in, in when it's not hmm. unpaid when it is paid for what does that mean as well
2: yeah so that, that's the part we want to talk about as well and what, what does it mean um you know to be to to have unpaid care work Um, and uh, I mean is is, does that care work um, does it need to be paid or um, and how does it does how does it affect women
9: okay so unpaid care work includes all the work that usually is done by women but it is done to sustain our families our communities our lives overall as human beings Um, and and it it includes everything from childcare to domestic work, to cooking, to taking care of the elderly. It also includes, you know, our community functions. Um, all of that as part of the caring work that we do uh, in human societies. Mm-hmm. Now, care is is therefore then threaded and uh, is a thread that weaves across all our societies. It underpins our daily lives as well as well being. And there's not a single person who does not need care in some way or the other or who is not giving care in some way or the other. So all of us, whether we're men or women, you know, from the time when we're born um, and we're a small baby, we need care at that point to be able to grow. Um, As we get older, you know, as you get to an adolescent stage, you might need to, you need less care. And then when Mm -hmm. you're sort of a a working adult in your 40s, you know, you, you need even less. But as you start to age, you start to need it again as well. So everybody needs care. On the other hand, we need to look at how how we provide that care. Um, and around the world, care is provided in different types of ways, right? It's, sometimes it's provided, uh, most of the time it's provided by the household.
6: Mm-hmm.
9: but And in the household, it's often provided by the woman in the household, usually one woman in the household. But... the 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 needs and the responsibilities of it can also be shared and in some countries we also look at the share being the the care work being shared between um the household members and then also the household and the market the household and the government you know so there's lots of different models of how um care can be provided but um Overall, we see across the world that when you combine women's paid work and women's unpaid work, mm-hmm. um, it brings the day of a woman to be a lot longer than the day of a man because mm-hmm. of the the double sort of responsibilities that they have. And that also means that women have less time to do other things such as learning, um, leisure, or even taking a nap um, because those are all yeah. uh, things that we can do when we have a bit more time. So it, it leads to some sort of... Um, time poverty that women face because mm-hmm. they have so much that's on their plates and globally it just one just uh, the last thing i want to say here is globally um you know this has been recognized as all the governments in the world and by the un is something that needs to be looked at in a collective way on how we support um because it has implications with women's social economic and political rights as well as it has benefits across different aspects of our lives um, and including our families and there's one estimate that include that indicates that closing the existing care gaps between women and men and expanding the care services with decent care work um, could create almost 300 million jobs uh, by 2035, and mm-hmm. it would reduce gender inequalities and it would increase uh, well,
2: employment as well. I have a small yeah. question here: that uh, do, do you believe yeah. that if uh, you know men should be taking care of the house more uh, do you agree that women yeah. should be working more as well I mean wouldn't that be a, a disadvantage to the woman because she would have to equally start working
9: yeah so I mean there's there's a couple of ways to look at that right um, on the one hand we we see that uh, uh, there are a lot of benefits of for example um, uh, fathers and husbands taking more of a role in the family life right and we recognize that there are some things that maybe we cannot and do not want to outsource. Because just as a, as a point that I wanted to make there is that it's very important to recognize that we're not saying that we should eliminate all care, right, mm-hmm. all care yeah. services. from the household we we definitely don't want to do that Um, but there are some care services that are very rewarding like playing with a child um, you know like both a a father and a mother can do that or anyone from the household can do that but then there are some things that we cannot outsource such as for example breastfeeding or um, you know we we cannot value some of these things we don't know what the value of how would you put a value to reading a, a bedtime story to a child right Mm -hmm. Um, so there's there's multiple aspects of it but then there's some parts that are very difficult for example taking care of someone who has a long-term illness and while it might be not so difficult emotionally it's draining the caregiver needs help and support also you know uh, like the mental health so there are different aspects of it and we recognize that some of the things are better done by women and some of the things can be shared between the women and the men and that's what we really want to see is how we can engage um, other members of the household, including men, but also others, to be more uh, involved in the household. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't always. If, if, for example, if one of the, let's say, the woman is cooking, then the 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 man can help with the the cleanup. Um, and you know, making sure that's done, or if if the woman gives the children a, a bath, then the man can make sure that you know he's putting them to bed, different things like that. but we we want to see that there's an increased role um so that the work is shared. And there are benefits for the family in that as well the, the you know we've seen the benefits of having more involved fathers uh, involved uh, in the household. Yeah, but also the- we are seeing that there is a change. there is a change happening, particularly with millennial fathers. Who are taking more of a role in this, um, and and are are willing to be more part of the household, but they are also finding that they one of the challenges that they face is the social norms. So when the fathers become more active in the household, it's it's sort of the other members of the community um, who are then also who are judging them them and making comments and being like oh this person is very involved or or, you know um, Mm -hmm. things along those lines which are the things that we need to address because we need to set up an environment that is family friendly not just care-friendly, because that is very important, but family-friendly, because these things also help to strengthen the household and the family, and to have more of a dialogue and discussion between the the partners and the the members of the household.
2: Great, thank you very much. Yes, Um,
1: you're absolutely right. I think... um, like, there is definitely uh, more and more women asking for it. I-, I can tell you, my wife certainly makes sure that uh, if she's uh, doing something, then I'm, mm-hmm. if she's uh, giving them a bath, then I'm putting them to bed. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's certainly happening in my household, I can assure <laughs> you. Uh, thank you very much, um, uh, Mahajibin al for for joining us. Uh, really a pleasure to speak to you. All the best with all the great work that you're doing. Peace be with you.
9: Great, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, bye bye. So that was uh, Mrs. Marjabeen Alarakiya, who is a regional policy advisor on women's economic empowerment for United Nations Women's East and Southern Africa Regional Office.
2: The very interesting things you're saying, uh, which which, you know, uh, not not surprisingly, go hand in hand with Islam as well. Yeah. Uh, Just just uh, as earlier mentioned by one of the guests we recorded that. the holy prophet muhammad peace be upon him used to help in the house very regularly yes. and you know do his own chores yes uh so much so that it is narrated that he used to uh sew his own clothes uh with patches oh. uh, where they were ripped he would uh, clean his own clothes um and even help uh, with the cooking and cleaning exactly um, but we are when we talk about these um, I think this is where the gender these social norms come out. is that you, you need to speak in a general aspect mm. um, generally speaking you know uh, we, we even Islam has promotes it actually commands the husband mm. that he is responsible for earning for the house mm. uh, now some people might think that this is unfair but I think that, that that's that's commandment a exactly. is, is yeah. not a, a freedom. It's, it's not like an advantage to the man. It's rather a responsibility. Yeah, it's a huge responsibility. Right? If, yeah. if I had the choice to stay at home or go to work, yeah. I'd rather choose to stay at home.
1: It, I think that also begs an interesting question, which uh, uh, a lot of people are not aware of, actually, which is that so if, uh, if the wife actually does work, and if the wife earns a li- uh, uh, has an income uh what about in that scenario is she supposed to share under an islamic um uh, household 50% mm. uh, as is the western norm or how
2: yeah exactly like in in not just the west i mean in in many countries now oh. even in the far east maybe yeah. uh but especially in the west women are Uh, They have, you know, that freedom they want, but they also, uh, other men are expecting that the woman contributes to to the rent, for example, Mm -hmm. or to the groceries. But Islam says contrary to that. Islam says that the complete responsibility of the house uh, lays on the husband. And the reason for that is because you can't go 50-50 in everything, right? Mm -hmm. There, There might be equality. But if you you can't be equal in every sense, uh, if if uh, a woman just gave birth to a child, how how can you expect her to work and you know give part of, um, give that part to mm. her part of the rent? That that would be unfair. So that's why the husband has to is solely responsible responsible for what what happens specifically
1: to that income that the the wife makes. So
2: whatever the wife makes, yeah. Uh, it, it belongs to the wife, yeah. you know, in terms of Islam, because Islam does not allow the husband or anyone else to take any of the money of 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 uh, mm. the wife. Absolutely. Whether she earned it, whether she got it as a gift, or she mm. found it, or the husband gave it to her, mm. it belongs to her. Yeah. Right, but then there is other responsibilities which are put on the woman. Yeah, of course. Right. Like, uh, and, and that, especially house, in the earlier
1: years, uh, years, you know, spending more time with the kids, the, and and yeah. that's the Islamic philosophy. And that
2: because taking care of the house, um, I mean, being a housewife or homemaker is, I think, it's a very difficult and it's a it's, it's a, a very long responsibility job. Responsibility as well. Uh, just as uh, yeah. uh, the early guest mentioned that it's, if you if you count those hours, mm-hmm. if women start working and doing housework, mm-hmm. I agree that they are doing a lot more hours than the man is doing. Correct. But that's why Islam says that we. The, the responsibility is divided. All right. The working, making money, bringing the bread home is for the man. Taking care of the house is the woman. Now, somebody has to take care of the house.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right? Let's now uh, go uh, live to our last guest for this segment, who is Hishiyama Hammond, uh, who is a campaign manager for the global campaign uh, for equality in um Family law. The aim of the global campaign is to make equality in family law policy and practice a global priority. She is a researcher and activist with over fifteen years of experience working on women's rights, primarily in the global south, and is based in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Assalamualaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Breakfast Show. salam.
10: Well, thank
1: you so much for having me. Well, lovely to have you. Uh, firstly, did I pronounce your first name right?
10: Um, yeah, almost. It's Hishama.
1: Hishama. Hey All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. Right. Lovely to be speaking to you. Um, so, tell us about uh, how do you view the the gender equality needs and how they ca- that can be achieved within the laws regarding family matters.
10: Um, well, firstly, the term family laws, uh, just you know, for your listeners, is used in reference to one any codified laws, right? So laws that are enacted through legislation, body of statutes, rules and regulations, even court procedures in family courts, for example. Or they can be uncodified laws and practices that govern relationships within family units, as we see in many parts of the world. Um, And these can be civil and secular laws that apply to many contexts in the UK. Uh, Or they can be religious and customary laws based on customs and traditions of communities. But unfortunately, many of these family laws and practices around the world are discriminatory in some aspect or the other towards women. Um, and this can be when entering into marriage, during marriage, or even at the time of divorce. Mm. For example, child marriage, uh, enforced marriage is still allowed in many such laws. Right. Uh, and child custody and guardianship, we've been speaking about uh, child rights and you know uh, this morning,
6: mm.
10: and shared responsibility. These are all aspects of the laws can hamper, especially in their um, codified and practiced form. Divorce rights can discriminate, um, and we heard women's unpaid care work and labor labor rights within the part, within the household is also not recognized. Mm-hmm. Especially when marital property is divided at the time of divorce. Um, so, in my view, family is the basic unit of society, right? And we, through sure. the campaign, the global campaign for equality in family law, are advocating that governments must ensure gender equality in this basic form. Um, and that we must recognize and reform family laws that violate and discriminate against women.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you see any any geographical patterns in in the issues regarding gender equality and uh, how that impacts the progress of the society of the country as a whole?
10: Um, so there is a obviously around the world there are many multiple diverse types of family laws as I just mentioned, but particularly when it comes to religious family laws, we see communities and countries around the world, particularly in the global south, um, that follow laws pertaining to certain religions or religious denominations, right? And then you have, uh, for example, Muslim family laws, Hindu family laws, Christian family laws, and so on. Um, interestingly, according to a research by a global Muslim women-led organization called MUSAWA, um, who are a member, coalition member of the global campaign, they mapped over 45 countries around the world that have Muslim family laws. And again, unfortunately, there's some aspect that's discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really interesting is, despite the fact that these Muslim family laws, uh, you know, either from Muslim majority or minority contexts, no two Muslim family laws are exactly the same, which means that the pattern we're seeing is that there is a varying degree of schools of thought and thick and human interpretation um, in all these laws. And interestingly, many are also colonial legacy laws. Um, that have not been reformed for over 70 to 100 years. And what's really interesting in terms of patterns is uh, we're seeing a link between economic rights and family laws. So, you know, what some of the speakers mentioned this uh, before me um, and I want to bring it here again. So World Bank data actually shows that 76 countries um, restrict women's property rights around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, 19 countries have laws that that allow husbands to legally prevent their wives from working. Uh, 43 countries don't grant widows the same inheritance rights as widowers. So these are all examples that show us that there is some discrimination in family laws. And the impact we're seeing is in terms of educational attainment, economic participation of women, health and well-being, and survival. And even you know social and political empowerment of women is limited when these laws restrict women within the households. Um, do you want some good news though? <laughs>
1: Sure, absolutely.
10: <laughs> uh, so good news, your speakers have also already mentioned, but I just want to bring in some data here. So fortunately, we do see some news in, good news in terms of shared parenting, right? And the conversation this morning mm-hmm. has been around that. Mm. Um, and recent studies have shown that particularly when it comes to fatherhood, and I'm, I'm quite actually proud to say this, that um, the millennial generation of fathers tend to be more engaged and involved mm. with their children. Um, And unlike previous generations, there's a lot more sharing care work, spending time with children, taking paternity leave, you know, shared household responsibilities. But likewise, women are also becoming equal contributors to household expenses, especially Mm -hmm. given the economies of our our globe. Um, And as much as 46% of millennial households, according to Pew Research, um, have dual income earners, where both parents are working full time, and half of that number, in fact, women are primary breadwinners, that so they're bringing more income into the family. So, what's happening is that we're seeing this trend um, that's 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 kind of moving ahead with the you know the economic crises of our times, but unfortunately, our laws are still stuck way back mm-hmm. 70 to 100 years ago, according to you know mostly patriarchal notions of what family and roles should be.
1: Uh, shall I give you even better news so I'm not a millennial I'm probably generation X and even I have uh, (laughs) actually been uh, taking a lot more um, interest and sharing uh, responsibilities uh, with my wife as far as taking care of my children (laughs) are concerned
10: that is brilliant that is so brilliant my father actually used to used to be a a stay at home -home dad and I tell you that has you know changed and shaped my life in, Mm -hmm. in so
2: I had a question about your your statistics that um what do you see in in those households um is there do you feel like improvement in the in the marriage in the household or do you have any data on how how uh, how how that type of or that method of uh, you know sharing in in terms of income as well and and uh, caretaking at home uh how that's affecting families?
10: Um, well, I don't have any numbers and statistics, because I know that there's a lot of research that's been done. UN Women, for example, who's also a coalition partner of the global campaign, by the way, um, you know, lots of organizations, World Bank, etc., are doing a lot of research around this. And given that this is a changing trend, We're just now gathering all this information, so the next few years should be quite interesting in terms of research on this. Mm -hmm. But what we can see very clearly is that households that have a good, strong communication about shared mutual responsibilities between partners, and even a therapist will tell you this, right, even a marriage counselor will tell you this. That those are the those are the families that have the strongest foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's when one partner feels an imbalance of power or like their needs are not met either professionally or you know life goals wise. That's when we see that sort of distinction. Um, and shared and care work are, is so much better for children, um, uh, you know. And to see both parents equally participate in the upbringing and the caretaking of children of elderly um, is again very much in line mm-hmm. with our humanity um but unfortunately yeah. the laws have are such there is that they're
2: there is a small issue there for example with young children you say very you know six seven years old uh I've, I've heard about this that both parents are working the child needs a caretaker so they hire a nanny or someone and then for most of the day the nanny is taking care of the children so technically, the nanny is raising the children and the parents just come home in the evening just to, you know, eat with them and say goodbye. Don't you think that that's affecting the child's uh, upbringing? They're growing up with the nanny a lot rather than with the parents?
10: Um, so I am not a child rights expert, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, just just would your be opinion. To better place, uh, yeah, better place this question. But in my opinion, the problem with um, with even you know this question is that unfortunately the, the context of our times are such that parents i mean many families can't even afford to have children there was mm. a recent statistic just from my own country that said because of the economic crisis that sri lankans went to went through um, young newlyweds are delaying having children because they can't even afford children mm, yeah. so in in context like this in global crises it's just impossible to parent uh, with a single income household sometimes so sometimes it's out of the lack of choice, right? In other times, we unfortunately move towards nuclear families, which means that we don't have the support and care systems that our previous generations used to have in terms of mm-hmm. grandmothers and aunties and so on. Uh, the global south, of course, has it more, but you very well probably know in the UK and other Western contexts, it's very different. So it's yeah. really, um, I think anecdotal data can show that nannies actually support you know, the household and in others, you'll see cases where there, there are, you know, incidents where it doesn't. So it really depends on what the family, how much time the family puts together mm-hmm. in terms of a package of care. Yeah, I think we,
2: just, we're going to need you know, a, b- a bit more research yeah. on this. Um, but let's see. Hopefully uh, we will have more data in the coming years. But thank you anyways. Uh, thank you, Ms. Amin. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, you spoke very well as well. Thank you so much for joining us.
10: Thank you
1: so much for having me. Bye-bye. So that was Hesham Ahmed, who was speaking to us all the way from Colombo, Sri Lanka. Uh, In the Holy Quran, chapter 33, verse uh, 36... Allah says, surely men who submit themselves to God and women who submit themselves to God and believing believing men and believing women and obedient men and obedient women and truthful men and truthful women and men who are steadfast in their faith and steadfast women and men who are humble and women who are humble and men who give alms and women who give alms and men who fast and women who fast and men who guard their chastity and women who guard their chastity and men who remember Allah much, and women who remember Allah much, Allah has prepared for all of them forgiveness and a great reward. So that shows uh, the Islamic philosophy of of uh, equality around spiritual reward that uh, that God has given and entailed for both uh, when uh, for both men and women, and and therefore it is important to uh, maintain that. Um, that was, ladies and gentlemen, our show for this morning. We've talked about two topics. The first one was about Children's Mental Health Week. The second one was about equality in caring responsibilities. I must thank our lead producer, Sima Breman as well as um, the producer for this particular show, who is Damina Jima, uh, Faiza Jima, uh, Cyber Saiba, um, uh and researchers Hassan Walid Khan, Rukhsana Nasser and Sarah Rashid. Excellent support from the text room from Mr. Tahir, who is actually not feeling very well today, but despite that, excellent support to him, so keep, to keep him in your prayers as well. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. We uh, will be back with another live show tomorrow morning. Do join us for that. I will be back next week, next Monday at 7 a.m. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa barakatuh May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Nine o'clock news is next.